Uh, welcome, everybody. Good to see you on this uh, lovely summer day in December. I hope you're enjoying it. Yes. Yeah. I know you are, and I'm excited for you. <laughs> but we're in the uh, 11th chapter of uh, the book of Revelation. Um, let me rehearse and remind and refresh your memory on a couple of things. I think all of you should have this. Um, I distributed it a while back, and Fred has sent it out as an electronic uh, copy as well. If you don't have one, um, I, might, I might actually have an extra one. I do have an extra one or two in case anybody needs any. But the uh, just to remind you, this is just an important thing, I suppose, uh, at least I've always found it helpful, to keep in mind as we study the book. The main narrative is what you see in the center, if you will, even a timeline. But the main narrative is in the center, and once we get past chapter 5, because 4 and 5 you're in the throne room of God and so on, uh, from 6 on through the end, what you see is a series of three, three series judgments. So if you're following. Number one series is the seal judgments. Number two series is the trumpet judgments. Number three series, which we have yet to study, is the bowl judgment series. <clears throat> so it's a series of seven, three sevens, if you will. And each one enhances um, in terms of its intensity on uh, planet Earth. What I've done here, actually a friend of mine put this together, but what you see then in terms of the boxes below and the boxes above this basic timeline are, we'll call them parentheses, you know, I nicknamed stuff like that bunny trails, but a series of parentheses where the narrative is interrupted and John, as he is inspired by God's spirit, uh, goes on a little trip, tells us something. We already ex uh, get through, got through chapter 7. This, this is 144,000. These are the witnesses of God to reign this, this period. And then we are almost done with chapter 11, which is another one of these parentheses, but another bunny trail where you, you're introduced to two additional witnesses of God. Indeed, they're called the two witnesses. And we learned about them, talked about them extensively last week. And one of the things that we did last week, which may have been a little confusing for some of you, but we cr tried to construct a little bit of a timeline of this. Because when he's discussing the two witnesses in chapter 11, he talks about three and a half year period. You're referring to it in a different ways throughout the book, 42 months, 1,250, 60 days, etc., but three and a half years. And most, not everyone, but most believe that their work, their ministry, is in the first three and a half years of this seven-year period. Okay? And so now, as we're about to transition out of chapter 11 and transition into chapter 10, we're down here at the bottom, this box, because the author, John, is not back to the main narrative yet. He's going to tell us in chapter 12 and 13 and into chapter 14. This is extremely helpful. There are seven key players during this seven-year period. And that's what these chapters introduce. Who are these seven key players? So that's what we want to, we still have a little bit to do in chapter 11. But when we're done, that's what we're going to do, and we'll never get all that done today. So um, that's kind of where we're at. So are you all reasonably with me, or do you need to ask some questions? I just want to ask David, you, please, absolutely. Uh, this whole thing with the number seven, why, why does God put so much importance in that number? Well, I'm not God, so I don't know if I can answer that question, but it does seem, Dave, that... Seven is a number, and it seems to be that way rather consistently throughout the scriptures, is a number that is associated with completeness, with perfection, with wholeness. Uh, and that it just seems to be that number that is used by the Lord as just a reference to that. So that you are right, that number seven keeps showing up in a variety of different ways uh, in, the, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, but that's usually... And really, the only way it seems to answer that. And I mean, for example, I'll give you one example. In Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about the seven 
uh, attributes of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. And then when the book of, he, uh, book of Revelation speaks of the seven spirits before the throne, that's the Holy Spirit. So it really helps us to sort out and unravel some of the difficulties or even mysteries that are throughout Scripture. But that number seven just seems to reflect the wholeness or completeness or perfection of God. And that's a number he's chosen. But doesn't the number 666 mean pretty much the opposite? It does. We're not there yet, but you are right. (laughs) And that we'll see in chapter 13. That's right. And that that term, that number, I should say, is associated with... uh, and I, my own view, and we get to that, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that. That is part of that counterfeit messiahship that Antichrist represents. So he, the number that is associated with him is not seven, it's six. So you're right. Oh, Jim, don't you think in, in, in all of this that Satan, he knows he's going to be defeated, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. He can read. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're teaching us, and mm-hmm. he knows the other people, mm-hmm. you know, he knows he's defeated. Yes, that is very clear. And so I, I think I've even said it here. That gives us an indication, it seems to me, of how evil he really is. Yeah. Because even though he is defeated, mm-hmm. I mean, he is going to lose, uh, so to speak, and he's going to be cast into the lake of fire, which we'll study later on in this book. He still keeps going. I mean, many, you know, typically anyway, when you know you're defeated, you sort of give up. <laughs> you know, at some point in a war, at some point you're so clearly defeated, it's re- ridiculous to keep going, and you, so you surrender. Or sometimes in a, you know, a, an athletic contest or whatever, but Satan, his goal, it seems to be, is to take as many of God's image bearers with him to the lake of fire. That's his goal. And... Uh, when you think of it that way, you really get a sense of how mm-hmm. truly monstrously evil he really is. Mm-hmm. All right, good. Let's look then. Uh, if you're following, we'd be on the twenty-eighth, or excuse me, the twenty-sixth page. I want to start with uh, verse fifteen. Now, um, I, I'm again, unless you want me to, I'm done for now with any of the material on the two witnesses. Because their work, I believe it's in the first three and a half years of that seven-year period, what Jesus calls the tribulation, um, their, their ministry is completed. The Antichrist, he's called the beast, slays them. They lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, then they're taken up to heaven. And that just a remarkable and, and spectacular display of God's triumph, even in the midst of what looked like defeat, because if they're killed and they lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, you think, well, okay, he won. But, of course, God, uh, God does not let that occur and, and supernaturally intervenes and, and takes them to heaven and so on before the whole world can see this. All right, so that is over now in verse 15 uh, and really through 18. But we're introduced to the seventh trumpet. But this is what you're going to see, that discussion of the seventh trumpet. But then we're not going to see what's in the seventh trumpet until chapter 16. So come and keep this in mind, because this is the key narrative. Seven followed by seven followed by seven. So he, after he, blow, he records the blowing of the seventh trumpet, we go on another bunny trail. In other words, where we're introduced to those seven personages associated with this period. So... Verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You may recognize that because Hondo put that in Messiah, his great oratorio, because that keeps going through that great oratorio. Well, anyway, and the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and was. Behold, thou hast taken thy great power and has begun to reign. Okay, now, verse 18, and I mentioned this in the notes. Verse 18 is like a summary of the rest of the revelations, a summary of the rest of the book. Because this is, this is exactly what is going to happen. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, 
and the time came for the dead to be judged, a time to give the reward to thy bond servants and prophets and saints and those who fear thy name, the small, the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. So verse 18, you have this announcement, this remarkable, extraordinary announcement of the kingdom of God is now coming to earth and he's going to reign forever and ever. And then at summary of verse 18, but before that happens, these things have to happen. And that's what verse 18 is, just a quick, in, in literature we sometimes call this a foreshadowing, but it's, it's summarizing what's about to come. And so you have the, the in, in continued rebellion of humanity, the nation's raging, God's continued wrath of judgment, then the judgment of God at the end, and then the division of humanity as a result of that. So, I mean, it's like this huge, big overview panorama of what is about to come. And then he says something in verse 19, which at first is a bit curious. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning sounds, peals of thunder, earthquake, and great hailstorm. What is that all about? John is able, John the writer, is able to peer into heaven. God has granted him that throughout this book, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. Now that raises a question. Does that mean then that in the heavenly temple of God, there is an ark. Yes. Now you have to you have to let your mind well, maybe that's not the right way to say it. But you have to review things that are in other parts of the Bible. In the book of Exodus, when Moses is, is instructed by God to construct the tabernacle, which is the precursor to the temple that Solomon will build, he he allows him to see, to get this vision, gives him the dimensions of it. It is an exact replica of what's in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about that. Now again, that, that might sound a little strange to you unless you have really studied this in the Bible, but John is given, John is, John is given this quick vision, the Ark of the Covenant. Now why? That's been, that's been, a, um, that's been something that's discussed among the expositors. But it, the best way to understand this, I think, is to remember the Ark of the Covenant is what was in the ark? Ten Commandments. Okay, you're looking at me as if you have this deer in the headlight look. You don't even know what I'm talking about. The Ten Commandments, cup of the manna that God used and he supernaturally fed the, <coughs> excuse me, the children of Israel during their wilderness wanderings, and then Aaron's rod that budded. All three of those things, now here's the key, all three of those things indicate God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. When he says something, don't doubt it. And so John is, he peers into heaven, so to speak, the temple in heaven, and sees the Ark of the Covenant. It's a reminder. It's a visual, uh, tactile, object lesson kind of reminder. I have spoken, and I'm going to do it. The Ark of the Covenant for the people of Israel as they traveled in the wilderness and then as they uh, were in the land under Joshua and then as the monarchy is established and so on, the Ark was always the key visual tactile sign that God has made a covenant promise and God's going to keep the covenant promise. That's always, you saw that and that's always what you were reminded of. And it was just that continue. And so God again is reminding John, I'm allowing you to see this. Now remember, historically and visually, that's a reminder that I keep my promises. I've made a covenant. And I'm going to keep that covenant promise. All right, I may have lost you, but you, did I or are you sort of with me? Because it is, why does God give him this snapshot, this quick view of this? It's the only reasonable explanation is to remind him this is the God that's declared this. This is the God who said he's going to do this. <clears throat> and now he's about to do it. There's a whole lot going on here uh, that could be quite disturbing unless he came back to this point, I would think, and made the point, I am with you. 
and and I will do as I said I will do. Justice will prevail. Yeah, you know, in essence, I mean. And I'm gonna. That's right. And I'm um, I'm gonna keep my promises. And I'm gonna accomplish my purposes. And I am because this is the theme. Is I am gonna establish my kingdom on this rebellious, defiant planet. And that's what the angels are singing in verse 15, and and what those around the throne in verse 16 are singing. That God is that kind of God. He said his kingdom is going to come. Jesus instructed us to pray that the kingdom would come. It's about to happen. And God is just reminding John, the writer, of his faithfulness to that covenant promise. Got it? Got it. Seven of you do, the rest of you are in <laughs> never, never land. I'm just kidding. I'm very warm, so all of you are really enjoying this. 63 degrees in December. We'll take it. So, just the ark that the Jews had with them yes. all the time, yes. that was actually kind of a duplicate of the ark? It was, it was uh, that's right, it was made after the dimensions that oh, God gave okay. to Moses, that's a good, it's a replica, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And Hebrews chapter 9 declares the same thing. Exactly. Alright, now let's, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the seventh trumpet has blown but we will not learn of its contents until chapter 7. So we're going to about start another little bunny trail, another parenthesis. <laughs> and again, keeping that in mind that the main narrative or this series of seven, three part, uh, three judgments of seven parts each, you keep that, okay, that keep, now we're on, he's telling us something. And it's almost as like, um, I'm not trying to make this up because I, I don't know, but I think this is right. It's almost as if, all right, we need to know who are the main players in this period of time. Who are the main actors, if you want to put it that way? Who are the key people? What is going on here? We've heard about God's judgments, seal, trumpet, but who, who is doing what during this seven-year period? And so chapter 12 and 13, particularly in 14 kind of, focuses a little bit on, on all of these things together. But in this passage of chapter 12 and chapter 13, we are introduced to the seven key personages that make up this conflict. Now, the first one, the first one's the most problematic because it has generated a tremendous amount of controversy. But let me read it. And if you're following in your notes, uh, we're now transitioning right to the top, page 27. But... Verse 1 and 2, and a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her crown a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. <clears throat> all right. Um, if all we had was a woman clothed with the sun and she gives birth, we might conclude that's Mary. But it says of her, she has a crown of 12 stars. And we, we know, there are two things here. We know sun, clothed with sun and moon under her feet, and on her crown, had a crown of 12 stars. Those two things, the, the moon and the star, refer to Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 37. And the 12 stars refer to their, the children of Jacob. So because of that, this moon and star symbolizing Jacob and Rachel, Genesis 37, and the 12 stars symbolizing Jacob's children, to whom is this referring? To Israel. And the child that she is about to give birth to is clearly from verses 5 and 6, Jesus. So for now, let's just kind of keep that in your hat. We'll come back to this in just a minute. Verse 3, 
is the second key personage. There is no doubt who this is. So what you might want to do is draw a line in your Bible, just make a mental note between verse 3 and verse 9. Verse 9 explains further who this is. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. Look at verse 9, and this great dragon was thrown down, the serpent who is called the devil, and Satan who deceived the whole world was thrown down to the earth, etc. So this dragon of verse 3 is clearly Satan. There's no, I mean, there's no dispute about that. Continuing in verse 4, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the woman stood before the, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, verse 4 could be very important because it says his tail, we know from verse 9 that the dragon is Satan. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. It tells us in verse 9, thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown with him. So you put those two together. How many angels joined Satan in his rebellion? A third of the angels. You see what, now this is, man, this is Bible study. This is how you put things together to try to get a clarity of understanding. So what we see in verse 3 and verse 4 is the dragon and his, the the seven heads, ten horns, and so on. That's going to be associated with things we're going to study in chapter 13. So just hold on for a minute. And we learn that his tail sweeps a third of the stars of heaven. And we learn down in verse 9 that the angels joined with his angels, his minions. So you start start to put some things together because we know from other parts of God's word, we know that some angels joined Satan in his rebellion, the formation or the origin of the demons, if you will. Verse 4 could be telling us how many. Now, it's a finite number. We don't know. Is that thousands, millions, hundreds? We don't know a finite number. But it's, it's just telling us something. That's a very important piece of information. A third of God's angels joined with Satan in that rebellion, which is the origin of the demonic hosts. So you you have a sense, because that's going to become very important in verse 7 and following, because verse 7 and following introduces us to this cosmic warfare that's going on between the angels of God and the angels of Satan. And Michael, whom we will see identified in verse 7, who has appeared several times in God's word, is a key archangel. All right, now, I'm, I'm trying to go as slowly as I can and explain some things without losing you. So we've gotten two personages so far. Okay? Um, <clears throat> do the angels have a free will or not because this would indicate that a third of them and you know it's like you say it's corroborated in the scriptures left can you speak to that point of the the will of an angel i, well, I wish i could speak authoritatively to that okay. subject but i i think we have to um, we have to conclude I mean, and the way you framed your question, it's a good way to frame it. We have to conclude that the angelic beings do have a free will. They do have a, a capacity to either choose or to, to rebel against God in terms of obedience or disobedience. That has to be the case, Fred. I mean, exactly when you speak of Satan. Ezekiel 28, verse 14 and following describes his his role before he fell. And he was an extraordinarily beautiful and powerful uh, creation of God, right at the throne, if you will. But he had the capacity to choose to rebel 
and he chose to rebel, and he led a rebellion. And if we're understanding verse 4 here correctly, he led a rebellion that involved a third of the angelic hosts. So the answer to your question must be, God gives them the capacity to either choose obedience or choose disobedience. And Which means two-thirds of the angels <laughs> chose obedience to God, I mean to follow God, to not rebel, I guess you could say. So once that decision is made, from what you can tell, is that an irrevocable decision then? Is that then? I mean, as far that as is an inference that we draw. The Bible does not explicitly state that one way or the other, but it seems reasonable to conclude that it is irrevocable. That, I mean, because Jesus Christ did not come to earth to die a substitutionary death for the angels. He did not do that. The angel, though, let me put it another way, those third, if that's correctly understood here, that third that chose to rebel, they, they will never be reconciled to God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 says, they will be subdued. They will not be reconciled. Okay? All right. Woody, are you with me? Trying. Trying. I'm having a hard time drawing the line between the significance of the woman that's pregnant and the child that's born. And well, we didn't get there yet, but I mean, in terms of verse 5 and 6, but go ahead with your question. Anyway, uh, how he's supposed to rule as a child for 4,000 days. Okay, can, let's get to that, because that's verse 5 and 6. Okay, so the first... This woman, whoever, I think it's Israel because of the way we talked about it. No, there's no question what's going on in 3 and 4. Now verse 5 and 6, and that's a, that's a very valid question. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, now let's stop there for a minute. So often, the Bible speaks this way of Jesus in a synopsis. That rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's the language of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And her caught up to God and to his throne. What would that be a reference to? To his ascension. But remember, and I'm, I'm, in, in what I'm about to say, I think I'm going to answer your question. But the Bible... Oh, no. Do we have them? They're on the wall. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I should probably look. <laughs> All right. Here's you got the sun, okay? What the Bible does is it speaks prophetically. I'm thinking here of like Psalm 2, Psalm 110. I mean, just oh, on and on. There's a whole bunch of them. The Old Testament prophecy. It speaks of him being born and him ruling. Okay? That, that doesn't look like it, but that's you and that's you know, ruling. Okay? And right here you see it. You see it. He, he's born, he's going to rule. But remember, what the Bible does in its whole 66 books is it divides this into his first advent and his second advent. Okay? His first advent is where he will be. He will be born. He will live for 33 years. He will die. And then he'll be taken. He'll be he'll sent back up to, to the Father. Then he will come again and establish his rule. Verse 5 summarizes the whole thing in three phrases. That's all it's doing. But and, and it becomes very clear as this unfolds. This is clearly a reference to Jesus. And Satan, Satan's goal, Satan's mission, Satan's focus is to destroy this child. And when he cannot destroy the child, then to destroy all of those who follow the child. That is Jesus. Did I lose you or are you with me? Because it, it tells us in verse 4 
that he, his point, his goal, his focus is to devour the child. Do you see any evidence of satanic attempt to destroy the child? How about Herod? When he hears the news that a child born king, he got three people, or I mean, not for three, but we have magi from the east coming to worship him. Tell me where he was born so I can go worship him too. And what is he really doing? He's plotting his execution. And he sends his soldiers down to Bethlehem, wipe out every boy child under two. Could Satan have been the inspiration for this? Of course. How many times did Satan attempt to destroy Christ? How many times did Satan tempt Jesus? How many times? I mean, because all he wants to do is keep this child of God from going to the cross. At, at no end, he does everything he possibly can, but he can't prevent it. I mean, I just look very carefully at the temptation. Turn this bread, turn this stone into bread. You're hungry, do it. You've been on a 40-day fast. You're, the, you're God, you can do it. So much more about this than just satisfying my hunger, Satan. Get away. And, he, and then the next day, he, he takes him to the, to the, the uh, pinnacle of the temple. If you've ever been to the Temple Mount, we know exactly where that pinnacle is. It's called the pinnacle. Jump off this. Quote Psalm 90. Your, your angels will take care of you. Do not tempt the Lord your God. I'm not going to act independently of the Father. Okay, he takes him up to Mount Hermon, the highest point, and somehow gives him a panoramic view. I'll give you all this. It tells us something that Satan, the great usurper, has taken the dominion status that humanity deserves to rule God's world. Genesis 126. I'll give it to you. Just bow down to me. One little bow of the knee and it's yours. What the Father promised you in Psalm 2 and Psalm 10, 110, I'll give to you. If, if that would have succeeded, Satan would have won. Because Jesus would not have gone to the cross. He would have been ruling with Satan. And you know, Jesus, the language is so clear, he just dismisses it. Get away from me. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Get away from me. And I mean, it's just triumph. But Satan does everything he possibly can to defeat the child who becomes the adult, who becomes the sacrifice, who goes back and ascends back to the Father, but who promises to come again. And when he cannot defeat the Son, verse 5, he takes out after those who follow him. That's why verse 6, the woman flees into the wilderness. This is more than just a single woman. These are the people. And she will be there. They will be there. This is going to be explained in chapter 13. What's happening in verse 6 is explained in chapter 13. When Satan, through Antichrist, makes war on God's followers and tries to destroy them. He cannot defeat God's son but he can defeat, he thinks, those who choose to follow the Son. Yes, Daryl. Uh, verse uh, 5. Yes. Is it possible to read Yes, that's good, that's good. And that rod of iron language is, is right out of Psalm 2, verse 7, I think it is. And uh, rule the nations is right out of Psalm 110, verse 1. So you, you, see, you see in verse 1 through verse 5 the primary antagonist. You see Satan, you see God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see, I think because of what we'll read in chapter 13, it's the people of God, Israel, and those who have followed Christ during the tribulation period, because they're the only ones left. Now verse 7 through verse 12, and, and I will, we'll come back to verse 6. I mean, it's here, but we'll see it elaborated upon in chapter 13. It's, it's a very important part of it. 
as you will see. But chapter seven through chapter, uh, uh, chap uh, excuse me, chapter twelve, verse seven through twelve is a very, very important paragraph because it it tells us something that you we don't usually read about. We saw a little bit of that in Daniel chapter ten, but it's this supernatural mm -hmm. cosmic struggle. Verse seven. Just, just look at verse seven. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. Okay, where do those angels come from? Verse 4, a third of the star. We think that's the right way to understand this. But what do you have? You have Michael, who in, in Jude is called an archangel, leading the angels loyal to God in a struggle with Satan and the angels loyal to him. Now, if you just have that dynamic, who's going to win? The bigger crew. <laughs> I mean, you know, just think, you know, Michael and the two-thirds versus Satan and the one-third. So the next verse, and they were, no, they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. So the conclusion is, the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world, was thrown down to the earth, and the angels were thrown down with him. Now, that's, this is a very, 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 we're at a very, very, very important point in the narrative of this tribulation period. So let me start this by asking a question or two. Does Satan have access to God today? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that, so I'll repeat it. Does Satan have access to the throne room of God today? Can Satan go into the presence of God today? I mean, it's hard, that's a hard question to answer. I don't, I don't think he would. Only if allowed. All right, only if he's allowed. Do you have any evidence of Satan doing that? With Job. With Job. In Job chapter 1, we're in our, and into chapter 2, and chapter 3, actually, all those were introduced to the narrative where Satan goes into the throne of God. And God says to Satan, did you see my man down there, Job? He's in righteous, upright. He's an example of what this is all about. And Satan challenges God. First John chapter 2, verse 1 and following, it speaks of Jesus being our advocate at the throne of God. That when the accuser comes, the accuser of the brethren comes, Jesus stands up and says, he belongs to me. Don't accuse him. I bought him or her, whoever, <coughs> those who put their faith in Christ. So the inference seems to be that Satan still has access to God's throne. And he's the accuser of the brethren, a phrase that's used of him. But what this passage is telling us is in this last segment of time, before Christ returns on all of that, Satan now will forever be denied access to God. He can no longer go into the throne room. He is thrown out of heaven. Access is denied. So we're seeing here, which is just really quite powerful, we're seeing this, that as things are going on on planet Earth, there's this enormously significant cosmic battle among the, the uh, evil versus good angels, if you will, Michael versus <clears throat> Satan, if you will. And it says it's very clear, he's not strong enough. The one-third cannot defeat the two-thirds. And so they're dismissed from heaven. And we have, we, have no, we have no doubt whom this is referring to. Verse 9, that's a, by the way, verse 9 is a really important verse for the whole Bible. Because you have all those labels, the serpent of old, that takes you all the way back to Genesis 3. The devil, Satan, all of those key names of the chief rebel against God are in this verse. We have no doubt what's going on here. This accuser, this deceiver, uh, this, this serpent of old Genesis 3 is thrown out. 
no longer has access to have, and his his minions that go with him. You, know, you say there's no doubt, but as I read verse 7, it says Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Right. Then verse 8 says, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So there's, I don't understand if he's saying that Michael wasn't strong enough. No, 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 no. The, the, the they, it's a plural, is referring back to the antecedent, which is the nearest word, which is dragon and his angels. The they is referring to, that's right, it's referring to the dragon, and we know from verse 9 who the dragon is. Yes. Yep. 9 explains 8. Well, it does, it, it does, absolutely. Absolutely, Andrew. Oh, I just wanted to create a bunny trail or anything. I wish Mark was here to substantiate it, but maybe you heard this before. I, I did a class about a year ago at a local church that was that was talking about tenets of Islam and things like that, taught by a former Muslim, now a Christian. And he was, in this language here, the deceiver of the whole world, he was saying that in, in the Quran, in the correct interpretation of the Quran, Allah calls himself the great deceiver and calls his, his followers little deceivers, gives them permission to lie in order to forward the progress of Islam. Have you heard that's correct. That's correct. So I just always think that language is interesting. <clears throat> That's correct. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to let that lie on the table. <laughs> in light of Donald Trump and everything else that's going on, I'm just going to let it lie there on the table. Yeah. And I think one of the... Yeah, but that is, that is correct. That is correct. Go ahead. What it means. <clears throat> Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. <clears throat> so from what you're saying, Satan was in heaven during the course of the Old Testament. and ha- Has access to heaven. That's, right. that's a better way to... To heaven. Yes, that's right. Okay. That's right. So was this war then to take place about the time of Christ's first coming as a baby? Then? This, this war in heaven? Well, I think that's a great question. I think this, this war, this conflict is, is ongoing. Okay. And I say that because uh, I don't know if you were here when we studied that, but in Daniel chapter 10, you see an example of that. Daniel's been praying. It's 21 days. God still hasn't answered. Finally, the angel who's going to answer the prayer says, I was fighting the prince of Persia. And, and he said it was, so, it was so intense. I had to call Michael, which is this same Michael, to help defeat him. And so, when, so that, that ongoing, that, that, uh, that war in heaven, so to speak, um, is ongoing. What we see in verse, in verse 7 and 8 now, this is, it's reaching a point of intensity and climax. And I mean, that's just hard to imagine because in human time, you're talking about several thousand years. But I think that's that's the correct way to understand that. See, that's um, that's one of the elements that the Bible, and it does not happen very often, but the Bible lifts a little window and lets us look into this. And we, we read about it, and all the, oh my goodness, that's reminding me that there's a massive cosmic struggle going on. Paul does that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following. He says, now don't forget, I want you to dress with the whole armor of God. Don't forget that you war, not against flesh and bone, but against rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly places. This spiritual warfare is real to dress for battle. In other words, and that, that he doesn't mean you literally put on the breastplate, but it's just this, you stand for truth, make sure you, you stand for truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's who you are now. Make sure you understand. Put on the helmet of salvation. Make that very clear. You are a part of God. Salvation. Put on the, I mean, it's all, and then have the sword of the spirit, which is that offensive weapon. The shield of faith. It's just the statements of who you are in Christ as you remember you are in a struggle. And there is someone out there and all his minions that do not want you to succeed. And they're going to throw everything at you to prevent you from exceeding. 
But then as John reminds us, but he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Jim, when, when we respond as Christians to temptation, uh, and we derive pleasure from responding to it and yielding to it, uh, we enjoy that pleasure, then Satan isn't really on our side giving us pleasure. He's against sinners and against Christians who would sin to draw them away <clears throat> from him. And, and, and is that part of the definition of this deception and, and deceiving that we can even fool ourselves as Christians? Well, it's not that bad. Um, if I do this or I do that, you know, uh, I enjoy that a little bit. That we're weakening our own stand. Well, yes. I mean, the, um, that word that is used there in verse 9, and it's a term that is used quite a bit throughout the scriptures, deception or deceive. Um, Satan promises you what he can't deliver. And he can, he can lure those who belong to Christ into that. Uh, you know, you, you know it, can, it can happen in so many areas and facets of our life. C.S. Lewis, in, and it's a wonderful allegory, but in his Screwtape Letters book, I don't know if you're familiar with that, I'm curious if I'm done read that. That's a wonderful reminder of what the evil one's like. But he, he has some really, some shrewd, he's, it's, it's about a, a veteran demonic training a young minion kind of thing. But the Screwtape, he says, so what I want you to do. Those, those who say they belong to Christ, study them. Watch them. Find out where they're vulnerable, then attack. Because what we want to do is destroy their witness. So what that's, and what he's, he's, Lewis is building on some insights throughout the scriptures, but that's exactly what Satan and his minions do. Where are you vulnerable? Where are you weak? That's when he'll launch the attack of deception. If your weakness is, you know, in some material thing, or you covet that which, or you lust after, I mean, all that's your weakness. Satan says, oh, okay, that's where I'll attack. You know, um, I had, I studied under a guy who said, now listen, some of you guys are going to be preachers. I really want to caution you. You become a good communicator, and you become really, really, you're gifted, and you really have people that come and listen to you preach. Let me give you a piece of advice. Don't listen to your own tapes. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because if you think you're really, really, really gifted, and you're really, really good, and you start developing that pride and arrogance, that I alone am, the, you know, that kind of thing. And all, all he was saying was just be really, really careful it's always being wise and discerning because if there is a weakness, the enemy will find a weakness. And so as, as it's stated here in verse uh, as, um, as, as he says here at the middle of verse 19, he deceives the whole world. The serpent of old, the devil, Satan, that's his masterful tool, deception. And I define deception as he promises what he cannot deliver. And that is exactly, he makes the promise, you grab it, and you find out it's actually the road to self-destruction, not the road to fulfillment. There have been many, many, many gifted pastors that think they're immune, and they get into situations where their whole life is destroyed. I can't, there have been, some of the guys I went to seminary, I can't think of two, they ran off with the church secretary. And they're very gifted guys. That was a vulnerability, and they were not wise. So, some become very proud and arrogant and, and become very successful. And then they fall. You see, it's, it's, it's this constant reminder we are in a spiritual battle. And if you walk tightly with Jesus, you're going to be okay. 
But if you, if you are not dependent on Christ and you think, you know, I can handle this one, Lord. I'll, I'll take it from here. Okay, Lord, I'm okay. I'll just take it from here. See you next week. You know, I'm making that kind of a silly statement. But that kind of arrogance is not, is not good. And so Satan is just depicted here. And I just love verse 9 because it captures the whole, the whole panorama of God's word on who he is. The serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. This great dragon who is the final thrust of his, this is, this is his last hurrah. And he is going to throw everything that he possibly can at God in this last hurrah. Jordan. I'm having a hard time understanding how God allows a war in heaven. Oh, George, you're asking. Um, it's it's the same. It's the same level of of question as to um, why does God allow. Sin and humans. I mean, it's that same thing. And at one level, I don't know if I can completely answer that. But I think this is the right way to begin to think about it. George, if God is going to create a world where he is able, where he's creating individuals who can lovingly worship him, he can't create them as robots. He can't create them as automatons. So if he's going to create that, kind of a world, then that means he must create beings who have the option to reject him. A third of the angels rejected him, and humanity rejected him, but God doesn't give up. He keeps. His plan is to reconcile and win them back. And I understand that, but it's it, but it's but that that rebellion, but I know, I know, and it's I honestly, it's it's hard for me. What the hardest question for me, and it really, it's a, it's very difficult. When Satan rebelled, I just snuffed him out. I mean, it, one second later, he'd have been gone. But it it has to fit into all the other aspects that are a part of what God is doing on planet Earth, but. This, remember, the rebellion started in heaven. Satan, if, if Isaiah 14, 12 and following is the right way, and I think it is, that's the account of Satan's rebellion. That occurred in heaven. That occurred in the throne room of God when Satan says, I will be like the Most High. I am going to topple God from his throne. That started in heaven. And a third of the angels then joined him. That's just hard to understand that. But a third of the angels joined him in that rebellion. And so, George, that is all occurring still in heaven. I can't answer the question, why does God permit it? For, I just don't know if I can answer that question. Other than coming back to that central premise that if God is going to create a, a world and a universe that lovingly walks with him, he's got to create a universe where there's the possibility, the risk, if you want to say it, where they will choose not to do that. But anyway, but it is. I mean, it is. You, you think. So, that's a great question, but I'm not sure I answered it correctly or uh, sufficiently. One of the 9,762 questions we will ask God when we get there. <laughs> All right, now, please look with me at verse. That's it. That's right. Sorry. Sorry about that. I want to close because it's still got two minutes. And I heard a voice, a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren. That is a that's a phrase you ought to underline. That is a very important phrase that tells us that Satan has access to God and one of the things he does is accuses the brethren. And accuse, there's a legal term. He files charges against those who are belonging to Christ. First John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is their advocate, standing at the right hand of the Father saying, don't listen to that. He belongs to me. Job, 
Job chapter 1 and 2. It's the same. That's throughout the scriptures. That is one. And why does God allow that? I don't exactly know. Uh, there are some answers that we can, somewhat I responded to George's question, but now it's over. He's thrown down. Who accuses them before God, day and night, no longer. Listen to me, as if you're not listening to me, but what, I want you to see something. Pick this up. The fall of Satan occurred in three stages now. Stage one is chapter 12, where he's dismissed from heaven. Stage two is Revelation chapter 20, verse 3 and following, where he's bound. And he's bound for a thousand years. We'll talk about that when we get there. Stage three is Revelation chapter 20. Um, I think I have that written down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Verse 10, where he's cast into the lake of fire. This is the downfall of Stage one. Actually, you could push it back even further across, but we're in the book of Revelation. That's all I'm focusing on. Stage one is he cast out of heaven. Stage two, he's bound. Stage three, he's cast into the lake of fire. The final demise. If you will, the, the, the uh, put it another way, the end of Satan is near. <laughs> now that we're in chapter twelve, and so he's he's laying out that that pathway now, that that path that's very clear of the final destruction of Satan, and with it all the evil and just. Oh. Can you imagine no longer having impure thoughts? Can you imagine no longer struggling? with doubt? Can you imagine no longer wrestling with your motives and your attitude? Can you imagine that? It's coming. The Lord Jesus comes back. That's sort of, I know we don't get excited in this class about biblical truth, but it's just one of those things. That's the promise he's made to us. And he's going to forever and finally defeat evil, and it's all going to come to an end. And that's, of course, ushers in the kingdom of new heaven, new earth, and all that. Goodness me, I guess I better quit here. But I wanted uh, the, the, the rejoicing and, and, and acclamation of what God's doing now. The final, the final chapter, we're here, the final chapter of human history is almost over. And that's where we're at. So tomorrow we pick up with verse 11. It's a very important verse. Fred, help me remember that verse 11, but I, I think I'll remember it. But you know, I'm old now, I forget things. So, but verse 11, I'm going to pick up with it. There's a lot in verse 11. And then we'll continue looking at these other personages, and especially chapter 13. First half, we're introduced to the beast, second, which is Antichrist. Second half, we're introduced to his key right hand man, the false prophet. So, a lot to do yet. So, next week, we'll have a, and then there's yes. a break after yes. that. Yes, right. yes, yes. Right. Because I'll announce that to everybody. He, but he yeah, is coming know. next Friday. And there's no, no way we're out of class. Fred, thank you. That's really that's special. May I take those? I would yes, like to take Put them back to back so they don't stick because there's a double back tape on Yes, sir. I well, I mean, that. you know, whatever. <laughs> they're yours. I just don't right, want let to. Me, let me pray here because yeah. we got to right. go. Lord, we're grateful for. Uh, for the, the really important message of the book of Revelation. We're trying to unpack all of its details here as we look at these, these main players in the seven-year block of time. But the main message is, Lord, you're going to triumph over evil, over Satan, over the rebels that joined him in a final cataclysmic way. And uh, evil and all of the struggles will be gone and it's, hard, it's just hard for us to envision that, but it's the promise you've made. And the book of Revelation is explaining to us these final stages. And Lord, we're just grateful for that. It's, it's almost trite, but I think it's, it's biblically sound. We praise you, Lord, that we're on the winning side. That we're not, we're, not, we're not a part of Satan's kingdom. We're not a part of that kingdom of darkness. 
and deception. We're a part of the kingdom of righteousness, of truth. Help us to live that way. Help us to be in utter and total dependence on you, to have our hands tightly in yours as we walk through life. Because when we let go and try to handle things on our own, that's when we can get into trouble. To walk with you is to be what Jesus called being poor in spirit. It just means we're dependent on you. We trust you, we love you, and we desire to lovingly walk with you and obey you. We just trust you'll give each man here that strength and that enablement to do that. Help them in their lives and responsibilities as parents, as grandparents, as employers, as employees, whatever their responsibility are. Uh, Lord, give them the enablement to represent you and to represent you well, because we love you and we want to walk with you. We pray this in your dear son's name. Amen. See you next week.